0: On this episode of comedy rewind did napoleon dynamite catch lightning in a bottle or could a movie this strange succeed in 2021 what is it about the film script that makes the comedy so polarizing were any students at napoleon school actually younger than like 30 years old all of this and more on comedy rewind rewind rewind, Push, rewind. i thought this was a comedy show what's going on guys welcome back to comedy rewind we're powered by Audio-Technica and Manscaped, as we re-watch the great comedies of the 1990s and 2000s. I'm your host, John O'Peck, and joining me is a man with a pocket full of potato gems, Stephen Del Prado. How you doing, Stephen? I'm pretty good. Welcome to the podcast. It's your debut over here. People might know you as the deputy editor over at Player Two, but you're also... A teacher of all things film. So, did you want to give us a little bit of a rundown of, you know, who you are, what you do, and uh, why we're talking about this movie today?
1: So, yeah, in my day job, I'm a film and media teacher at a Gold Coast high school. So, I spend most of my days talking about movies, uh, which you would think means I don't want to do it much in my off time, but it's generally <laughs> the complete opposite. And Player Two, which I've been at since its launch after the Black Panel folded, Matt Houston decided he would launch Player Two and got me into the fold. So I've been riding sporadically over there for quite a while. I'm not as uh, prolific as Mr. Paul James, but few
0: people are. <laughs> How well do you put up with Paul? Must be hard sometimes.
1: Oh no, Paul's a great guy, <laughs> and I have no, I have no
0: skin in the AFL game, so we get on very well. That's great. No, I love Paul, and I'm keen to to get him on one of my podcasts soon enough, but uh, we're both doing these interview podcasts, so there's a bit of friendly competition there with getting some of the game dev guests. (laughs) I can imagine. Yeah, it's all good fun. But, yeah, so, you know, when I announced we were moving into the 2000s, with this podcast I think you hit me up and said there was a few that you were keen to to look at with me and Napoleon Dynamite was one of them what is it about this movie that makes you keen to talk about it almost uh you know 16 17 years later I guess it's just kind of stuck with me
1: in that whole time and I don't know if there's quite been anything like it since not that's mm. hit as well as it has I don't think I think it came just at the right time before social media totally exploded and audiences were divided up into tinier and tinier niches and I think it felt prolific at the time like it felt, you know, to live through it like it was kind of, I don't know what the word would be but like, it was like a secret handshake like if new new lines Mm. from Napoleon Dynamite and could, you know, say them with other people it was, you know, was like this common understanding between one another over something that was super weirdly specific. But also, yeah. I think to a lot of us, probably didn't make a lot of sense and wasn't overly relatable in some ways, but was incredibly relatable in others.
0: Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I think it did kind of usher in, an, maybe not an entire era, but it certainly welcomed in some films of this kind of quirky... Variety. You know, we had Juno come a few years later that probably channels some of that same energy for that kind of high school comedy. And there were certainly a few others that that tried to tap into that vein of like the awkward kind of just offbeat humor that's on full display in this one. Yeah,
1: like Michael Sarah before Michael Sarah in a way. Yeah. (laughs) I also think it's probably like it's. And I, I. I'm probably talking out of my butt a bit here, but I think it feels a little bit mumble corey as well. Like, the the whole mm, mumblecore yeah. movement, like, it just hits some of those beats for me as well, especially on a rewatch. I was like, wow, this. I don't know if this would play as well today, potentially.
0: Yeah, that's one of the things that we'll definitely get into. But, yeah, it in some ways it does feel like a bit more of a slapstick version of that like royal tenenbaums kind of slow paced kind of comedy but as i said it does have this physical humor and comedy that's that's going throughout so it's it's not quite accurate to compare it to those films but anyway i guess a little bit of background on this movie it was written by jared and jerusha hess uh and directed by jared hess who went on to do nacho libra Um, and a couple of other small comedies. Those two were probably the the big ones for him, but man, it was filmed for just a few hundred million, uh, sorry, a few hundred thousand dollars and made 46 million at the box office, which is incredible. It's one of the best returns you could possibly get, I think, um, percentage-wise, for something that was shot in like 22 days. And you can certainly see that independent spirit throughout, can't you? Oh, absolutely. Like, it was from shaking
1: cameras and dodgy lighting to very cheaply <laughs> created and decorated sets. It's clearly working on a budget.
0: Yeah, and uh, it, it really works in the favor of the film, I think. in the Like, the setting is this, you know, it's Idaho. It's this, like, middle of rural America. There's nothing flash about this town. There's nothing... That looks good about this town and the people that are in it are just as unfashionable and um quirky and weird as as like it makes sense for for a budget like this too and i think that uh the fact that so many people in this film had like no experience probably acting in a film it probably goes the same way with like the people that worked on the production as well i'm guessing like they were either film students or people that didn't have a whole lot of experience.
1: <laughs> yeah, it definitely feels like some people's first project or maybe they just finished up like their film degrees and had a few things mm-hmm. under their belt and this was maybe the next step up for some of them. Strong What's Eating Gilbert Grape vibes as well in terms of the setting and yeah. just, a, just a lot of the feel of that. And we'll probably talk about it a bit later, that sort of flyover state, you know, midwestern setting that doesn't necessarily get represented a lot in this way like that very low socioeconomic kind of Mm. community like very plain i would say like if you look at it you like why would you make a film about these characters
0: (laughs) yeah and I, i guess the the reason is that it was just based on The writers lives and like i've just from doing my research a lot of the things that happen in this movie were stories that happened to them like a cow getting shot right in front of the school bus and some of those quirky people that you you grew up with at school so i think it does have like a real um, authenticity to it in that sense where this the stuff that happens in this movie is so weird that it has to be real like you just had to know someone that was like that at school and and that kind of thing so i think that like you said at the start like there's a relatability a, a strange relatability where like for me i i grew up in uh you know a country town it wasn't anywhere near the 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 small remote size of this community but i definitely knew uh people like the a lot of the characters in this film you know i knew people that had that weird personality of a guy like napoleon dynamite where everything they say is serious and they take themselves very seriously and they don't really have a any self-awareness about their dorkiness in a sense where like you know i feel like these days it's so common to be into nerd culture and that kind of thing that you can kind of own it and you can still be kind of cool but be into that stuff but um, Napoleon has no idea how he looks and how he appears to people, and he doesn't actually crack a joke for the entire movie. He's just a very serious person. And, uh, yeah, I think that that makes him, it makes him funny because you're laughing at him pretty much the whole time. But, uh, what do you think of Napoleon just as a character? I think it's, it's definitely feels like one of those
1: characters you make that's an amalgamation of character traits from friends or people you knew growing up like there's just too many things that are oddly specific uh, about the way like his mannerisms and things like that and and I wonder how much of that was um the script and how much of that was John Hedder's performance
0: mm. yeah I mean th- that's what another one of the things where like he was friend like went to college with um the director and the writer and was paid, you know, famously paid $1,000 to do the movie and ended up getting some back-end royalties. But um, it really... I mean, I've got a comment here from Simon Blackburn, a listener and previous guest on this show, who said that this movie is lightning in a bottle. And I think John Heder realized that. What do you make of his career? Because this seems like his, his peak, like it's his first film, but it's also like what he's best known for. And he's probably never really quite lived up to the potential that that people may have seen from from his performance in this movie which it's almost like it was made for him
1: <laughs> i think part of it is probably because it was such a breakout performance that it meant he was somewhat typecast as well like the physicality of the character and just his face is so tightly wound around napoleon dynamite that it must be hard for casting directors to look at him and not see that character and i think just mm-hmm. his um personal life as well with his religious beliefs and things like that have dictated some of his career choices. Sure. Uh, Because I have heard that he has had things offered to him that he's had to pass on because he doesn't really feel that it fits in with how he wants to present himself to the world as well. It's not that he's done Mm -hmm. nothing but I mean, depending on his royalty deal from Napoleon Dynamite, maybe he doesn't
0: need to work very often. Yeah. I mean, I've got a bit of a list of of his uh, filmography here so... Just in the two years after this, well, if, I, I guess this movie was 2004, towards the end of 2004. So in 2006 and seven, he did Benchwarmers, School for Scoundrels, The Sasquatch Gang, and Blades of Glory, followed by Surf's Up, Moving McAllister, and Mama's Boy. So he was in high demand, and he was cast in a lot of films, but I think Blades of Glory and maybe Surf's Up are the only ones that were probably well-received of of that list.
1: Yeah, definitely. I I haven't seen too much of his work, and to be honest, I haven't seen anything else by Jared and Jerusha Hess after this. I haven't seen Nacho Libre. This is like the one film of theirs that I've viewed, and it's much the same way for John Hedder. Like, I've seen bits of Blades of Glory, but it's not a film I've ever sat down to watch completely. And I think... It's kind of the same for a lot of the cast, though. Like, John Grise, who played Uncle Rico, I've not seen him in anything outside of this. And really, you know, Aaron Rule, who played Kip, It's, I think it really was, like, it was lightning in a bottle for a lot of these people, and I think it's probably something that they may never reach that level of again. And I, th- again, like I said before, I think part of it's probably the time that it hit. I don't think this film would... Mm do as well if it had have hit any later than 2005 I think I mean 2004 I think yeah it was that time it was just the right time the right place the right people for it to land the way it did
0: yeah I think if this movie comes out now it's definitely like a Netflix movie and maybe you see a few people tweet about it and say hey this movie's pretty fun check it out it, it definitely doesn't become like a meme it doesn't like take off the way that it did back then I think and
1: I wonder if that's because. Is there more stuff like Napoleon Dynamite now? or Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> is there only space for one Napoleon Dynamite? And once you've seen that, you're like, no, I'm good. I, I don't really need anything else like this. It covers all the bases.
0: Yeah, it's possible. I mean, you mentioned the the like the Mormon background. I think every almost everyone that worked on this movie that lived in that community that they were in was Mormon. And they obviously brought in other actors outside of their town. But I think that, that influence on the movie also makes it unique in that for me, like growing up Christian and having like friends that, you know, were also people that went to church and youth group and stuff. This was such a, a great movie for us because it was like clean. There was, there's like no swearing, there's no sex, there's no like sexual references or jokes or anything inappropriate. So you could watch it with your parents, you could watch it with your friends, you could watch it at school and it was just wholesome. And there's, there's no... Um, there's nothing risque about it. It's just, uh, it's, it's, it kind of ticks all those boxes and it's somehow still funny. So that was, I I felt like it was a rare thing at that time. And now we've got like so many, there's like so many Pixar movies and there's so many options that kind of do that. But I I felt like for the type of movie it was, that made it stand out to a lot of people too.
1: Yeah. I definitely think like the Latter-day Saint comic sensibility, is in there which they like I would I would say there are definitely undertones of sexuality and things but it's never explicitly done in like a, yeah. in a titillating way I would say right. yeah. if we get into some of the stuff that Uncle Rico's character does where it comes across as you yeah. know it's pretty suspicious and maybe a, it's a bit off yeah yeah like and th- those sorts of th- so the elements are there but it's it's not the main thing on display and it's it doesn't ever push it to that point that other directors might feel the need to to get a you know like a mm-hmm. shock gag out of the audience. If anything I think it makes it more effective.
0: Yeah, for sure. I, th- I think that's true. So, do you have any guesses for the Rotten Tomatoes score for Napoleon Dynamite if you haven't already looked it up? Oh, I
1: haven't already looked it up. Um let's go with 84%.
0: So it was coming in at 72. Oh, well, that's, a, so, that's a little lower than I was Yeah, a little lower. I guess it wasn't for everyone. Um, I have some comments from some of the critics of the day here. So the first one comes from uh, the Christian Science Monitor, <laughs> which is sounds like a very niche publication, but they said it was a refreshing new take on the overused teen comedy genre. And that it may not make you laugh out loud. It's too sly and subtle for that, but it will have you smiling every minute and often grinning widely at its weirded out charm. And I really liked that because that that's what it was like for me. Definitely as as the rewatch happened, like watching this this week, I only laughed out loud like maybe three or four times. And it was probably at the dumb like physical comedy, like the slapstick stuff, to be honest. But i it was definitely like, it's a script that I like, sit there and I enjoy what they're doing and you, you can recognize the the cleverness in some of it and, and like, knowing how, like, memed it's been or how, like, it's taken off and, and been quoted through the years kind of loses some of the, you know, of the edginess or not that there's much edginess, but it loses some of the appeal when, you, when you've heard someone make the same joke a million times or, or you know do their Napoleon Dynamite impersonations a million times. But I like, like the review said, I, I was definitely enjoying watching it.
1: I think it's so subjective because at least for me and my group of friends and the people that introduced me to this film, there were lines in the film that we would quote that aren't necessarily the lines that other people would pick up on. Like, your mum goes to college was one that we would say constantly. Yeah. But for other people, that might not even land. So... I think it just really depended on the sensibilities of you and your friend group and I think that's what me, had me laughing out loud at some moments was just lines that I'd forgotten that suddenly you know rushed back that that was something we would mm. just throw out there constantly and just yeah like I think the again like just the the way the script is written and the delivery by some of the actors is what really drives it home because so much of this film I can just imagine reading the script and just thinking this is not funny and I think yeah. it needs, like, the performance there and all of those
0: elements that to make it work. Mm. Yeah, it's such a dry script because, like I said before, about how Napoleon Dynamite as a character doesn't actually try to make anyone laugh. Like, there's there's not really anyone laughing in this whole movie because, apart from like maybe the bully laughing at his own joke or, or whatever, but like Kip isn't cracking jokes. Pedro's not cracking jokes. Like he's as dry as it comes. <laughs> Deb's not cracking jokes. It's just, and like the grandma's not cracking jokes. So it's just they just you know it's a it's a serious life in rural America.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think it's it feels even a little absurdist maybe, but definitely like it's it it doesn't feel like it's being funny on purpose.
0: Mm. There's probably people that watched it not realizing it was a comedy. <laughs> Absolutely, and that's where
1: I'm like, oh. I f- it feels like a stretch to call it a comedy in some ways even though it is funny because i i can't imagine like the like the writers sitting around going oh well what if we change this line wouldn't that be funnier like there are so many things you could do to this script to try to punch it up and make it more hollywood funny and i think that's probably why i enjoy it still is because mm. it feels a little bit different it's it's similar to the early work of kevin smith with with his sort of focus on dialogue yeah. like the reason people liked it was because it was not what they would normally get served up at the cinema.
0: Yeah, for sure. Alright, uh, so the number one song when this movie released in Australia. Do you have any guesses, Stephen? Oh, no. That's such a... Oof. November 2004. November 2004. Mm, I got nothing.
1: The only thing I can remember from around <laughs> that time was Outcasts album being super big so um, potentially roses but uh, I think that was probably a little bit earlier than November
0: possibly yeah. it's uh Eminem's Just Lose It <laughs> apparently it was number one ah uh, yes
1: one of his definitely top tier tracks for
0: sure yeah <laughs> great uh, great video but um, anyway we'll move on from Eminem to the cast of this film so what have you done for me lately John Heaters seemingly moved into animation quite a bit everyone in this movie came seemingly came back for the napoleon dynamite animated series that was short-lived in about 2013 i think um which kind of goes to show that they, they they didn't have anything better to do but it didn't last very long and i, I never checked it out did you ever check that one out? no i've, I've seen screenshots but it was never something that interesting i didn't need yeah. to know what happened seems like it seems like a cash grab, yeah. I guess, but good on them. Um, so, yeah, like I said, a bit of animation. He did surfs up in that initial kind of wave after this movie came out, but he's continued to do that a bit more lately. And he just did this, I guess, horror movie, Tremors, Shrieker Island. And I never heard of this, but it's Tremors is apparently a franchise of um kind of like uh, horror movies. It made two million dollars on direct to video last year that came out so tremors do you know anything about tremors this? is
1: a classic like terrible horror series kevin bacon i uh, was in the oh. first couple i believe so okay. the fact that that is still going and it starred him is quite interesting because i didn't know that he'd done that but right. yeah <laughs> tremors is like top tier b grade horror films
0: is this like a sharknado vibe kind of thing
1: it's about that ridiculous, but like like before that, so it was always one of those like you know very mm-hmm. worn videotape at the VHS store.
0: Yeah, okay. I think that they said that that was the seventh in the series. So good <laughs> on him. Like he he has continued to work. He hasn't really done anything that you know he hasn't popped up in a Jelapertow movie or anything. Um, but he's you know he's still out there and he's I'm sure he's doing just fine. Um, Diedrich Bader, who played Rex is that the character's name yep. the the type Rex Kondo, oh, um, love Rex Kondo. <laughs> who you know we all knew him at the time from like the Drew Carey show or from Office Space and he's like the big name in this movie which goes to show like he's, he's not exactly a big name but we've, he's just popped up in the Silent Bob reboot that was I guess 2019 and a, a small role in the Netflix series Space Force which I didn't mind. It's it's got um it's got some fun moments that series. Uh,
1: Diedrich Bader's a good guy to get in for a cameo. He was in um Jane Silent Bob Strike Back as well as the Hollywood security oh, yeah. guard. So true, yeah.
0: Pretty much everyone in reboot was in one of those yeah. movies. I'm sure. <laughs> uh, so Jared Hess, who I mentioned as the director and writer of this movie, along with his wife has just put out a Netflix documentary called Murder Among the Mormons. So after being away for a long time, working on like very small projects, like his IMDB is almost like empty. So I'm I'm guessing he's been working on stuff that doesn't even make it like into IMDB. But Murder Among the Mormons is is the big Netflix one. So if you're a fan of of this movie and want to see the director working on a documentary about true crime among the Mormon community. I guess that one's for you.
1: I mean, I, I did think watching Napoleon Dynamite, you know what I'd really like to see from this director,
0: <laughs> a documentary film about murder amongst Mormons. Yeah. Well, there it is. Um, Efren Ramirez, who played Pedro Sanchez has had a, a pretty solid career for, for someone that probably just kind of came out of nowhere. He was 31, when they filmed this playing that's a high school kid which works for so they, works for him like
1: but then you, the guy yeah. who played Don looks like he's near 40 so <laughs>
0: yes. yeah yeah i mean the, i guess Tina Majorino as Deb was probably the only one that could really pass for the the high school age
1: well and she had done <laughs> stuff like she was in that Seal movie as a kid i can't remember what it was called right yeah but um interesting story yeah. about um Mr Ramirez, his young, I think his twin brother actually got arrested because he was impersonating him and being like, Yes, I was Pedro and went around right. doing all of these like things. Apparently he did some dodgy stuff and it was um yeah, like it's pretty interesting, if any listeners wanna have a look into that sordid tale.
0: Yeah, so like what like Guest appearances and celebrity Yeah, he celebrity was literally rocking up and
1: pretending he was his brother and pretending he was in Napoleon wow. Dynamite.
0: That's crazy. I know John Hader also has an identical twin brother as well who, you know, I'm sure he's had to put up with a lifetime of, of people assuming that he's Napoleon. <laughs> it would make going out difficult. It would, it would. Um, so... He's been working a lot. Um, That's all I wrote down for him because it wasn't anything I'd heard of. (laughs) But he has been almost the most consistently hardworking person in this crew from just looking at, you know, their filmography. So good on him. Uh, Tina Majorino, who I just mentioned, she's done a lot of TV shows. You probably, you know, saw her on Veronica Mars and she's done like some different uh, kind of crime series over the years. Nothing that's jumping out at me in the last couple of years same with um john grease who you mentioned as uncle rico i think you said you'd never seen him in anything it wasn't until i was looking at his filmography that i realized he was on lost and i remembered the character straight away but i never made the connection that they were the same actor so there you go he he has been on something else
1: (laughs) (laughs) definitely don't have to click next page on imdb for some of these
0: people yeah no Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Um, So, what is the most 2000s moment of Napoleon Dynamite? I mean, it's such like a weirdly anachronistic
1: film. I read that um, Fox made them specifically put on Napoleon's uh, ID card that it was set in 2004 because Mm. they didn't want people assuming it was set in the 80s and 90s just because of the tech that's on display and, and I get that it's flyover state stuff. So, I find it really hard to even pin this film in the 2000s. I think the production side of things we've talked about to me the prom scene sticks out just the way that it's set up and the lighting and the decorations and stuff I'm just like oh this is just feels like it's very like early 2000s ish for maybe not even Hmm. any reason I can really explain than just a vibe it gives me but what about yourself is there anything (laughs) that sticks out to you as like super 2000s
0: yeah I think the the kind of obvious one is the chat room that that keeps spending a lot of time in he's on that dial-up computer like that computer itself is probably i guess it could be seen as a 90s device but the fact that he's talking about chatting to babes all day (laughs) um is and that he meets up with someone that he met online like that's a very 2000s thing and it's played as like a quirky and weird thing that he's You know, he's talking about this girl that he's talking to and that she hasn't sent, like, a full-body shot of herself. (laughs) So, it's obviously, pre-social like media and people, like, posting photos and that kind of thing. So, that, to me, was, like, the 2000s scene that made me go, oh, yeah, I I do remember, like, the days where you could, like, just jump into a chat room and talk to random people. But you're completely right about the rest of it. Like, this movie could be set in, like, almost any... Other decade, like we've got VCRs and Walkmans, Rico's cars, like a 1970s van. They put pl- like the music that they play at the prom, it's like forever young, yeah, and like time after time, like these 80s hits. And there's the A team theme song playing at one stage. Um, that's there's pay phones in it, like there's,
1: and I'm trying to remember, yeah. I think Uncle Rico has a mobile phone at some point when he's in his van. But
0: Yeah, he does answer the phone in the van, but you don't really see the close-up to see what model yeah. it is, I think.
1: So, yeah. is that like a satellite phone? But that just raises more <laughs> questions. Like, why does Uncle Rico have a satellite phone? His his yeah. video uh, camera that he uses to make his videos, like, it's, it's yes. just... It's so weird, and I just have to wonder if it's not just a product of that setting, like, trying to really drive home the fact that if you live smack in the middle, then it often feels like you're a decade behind the east or Mm -hmm. west
0: coast yeah i think that's definitely what it is and you know you see how rural it is the fact that their houses are so like there's these long dirt roads in between like groups of houses and napoleon's like running up one of them at one stage before he gets too tired (laughs) but i I think you're right like there's not going to be like the big Kmart and Target that you can just go to whenever you feel like buying something new. So everyone's wearing these old clothes from like... He's wearing moon boots from the 80s, which he probably inherited from like one of his parents who you never see and and hear anything about in this movie. But yeah, like the fashion from almost every character is dated. And I think that that's an intentional thing to, like you said, show that it's this town where no one really cares about being fashionable and it's not even really a thing you look at the furniture in the house you look at the tv and it's like the old crt it's got like the like the kind of carved like wooden sides to it from wood paneling yeah and it's just it's there's nothing modern like the most modern thing is probably like the bike that he rides around town on (laughs) <laughs> and the rollerblades, like which is still even a nineties thing in itself.
1: Yeah, it feels like it it's it's more like mid to late nineties, but everything everyone owns is from the seventies and eighties.
0: Yeah, for sure. And the I guess the other thing that you could point to as a two thousands thing is that Uncle Rico buys that time machine <laughs> online. <laughs> And it's like it's an online purchase, and I guess it was the wild west of um, online shopping back then, where you didn't really know what you were getting. There's probably no like refunds. It was just like taking the money and run. Yeah, you wonder if you didn't have to send a money order or something. Yeah, probably a check, mail order. But um, we'll move on to the next question. What's the most iconic scene, Stephen?
1: Everyone wants to say the dance scene, but for me, it's Rex Kondo. Uh, personally, so I've instructed karate for many, many years, and the whole grab my arm, other arm, my other arm, like that was something I would do with uh, my fellow instructor, like quite often, because it's just it, like some, like when you're running through some drills and scenarios, that is what it's like. It's like no, no, grab the other, no, with your other, yeah, there you go. That's that's how this is going to work. So I've quoted that um lots and lots of times, and yeah, just. Diedrich Bader's performance in that whole thing and just, you know, just the cut to the photo of Starla and just everything about that scene and Aaron Rule's yeah. performance as Kip is just... It's just wonderful.
0: <laughs> yeah. If you include the sequences where he's getting, like, rollerbladed and towed into town and out of town, like, that is so good. Like, why would you rollerblade if you're just getting pulled... On a bike, like you may as well just ride a bike.
1: But again, like that's—I'm sure that's something I would have done with my younger brothers. Like they would have been holding on to the back of the bike or something, so they didn't have to do anything. They just sort of got dragged along.
0: So funny. Yeah, I mean, I'm a sucker for a musical moment when it comes to these things. It seems like they're always the ones that tend to stick with me. Whether it's um, Zoolander or whether it's School of Rock in the last episode. But the dance scene, I feel like it's it's hard to go past. Probably the most iconic thing in this movie though is the like vote for Pedro T shirt. Like, I feel like that's the kind of the iconography of this film that goes even beyond the dance scene and oh, everything else. It, you
1: could buy those shirts. It was a it was a thing in the mid two thousands.
0: I mean it was a meme before we knew what memes were, in a sense. Yeah. And I know, like, uh, Ali, who has been on the show before from The Hungry Gamers, she's, you know, her, her husband's name is Pedro, and he has just had to put up with these jokes for years. Like, every time he meets someone, vote right for Pedro, like, it's just it's just uh, ubiquitous almost. Yeah, that would be frustrating, especially because like, it's
1: just Spanish <laughs> for Peter, people. Leave me alone.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's just my name. It's just my name. All right what holds up the best because you know we've talked about quite a few elements of this film still still working but what do you think's the element that holds up the best um i'm gonna cheat and there's a couple here
1: uh yeah that's fine the the setting I, i think absolutely the setting like at least like i've said from my own experience uh like the downtrodden midwestern setting often flies under the radar outside of Gilbert Grape is the only other film I can really recall where you see this sort of setting you know in in something that's not you know maybe really full-on like Hillbilly Elegy or something like that um Mm -hmm. and it's just that landscape and that set design the costuming it just feels so worn and authentic like it feels like they've just walked into their closet and put those clothes on and they probably picked those clothes up from the, you know, the Goodwill store that's down the road that Napoleon Mm -hmm. buys his dance cassette in. And it's just, it feels really, yeah, like authentic and lived in. It's almost got that, you know, sort of like cinema verite realism where as ridiculous as it is, I could imagine that you could just sit a camera in front of people and get some of these backwards (laughs) and forwards things happening
0: yeah that's true and I, I, we haven't mentioned it anywhere else but the scenes where he's actually at school and the way that the bullies talk and the way that like the other people in his classroom talk to him and the way that he like tries to brag about things that are obviously lies like he's just making things up that's so authentic to the high school experience as well i think from <laughs> from people that i knew you
1: mean he wasn't hunting wolverines in alaska yeah <laughs> <laughs> What
0: like fifty shot? Did, how many did he shoot? Fifty of them. Yeah,
1: like fifty of them. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that that's probably you know that doesn't hold up as I mentioned before. Don, poor old Don, <laughs> looks like he's about forty and really sticks out in the high school classroom. Uh, and um, yeah. John Grise's performance as Uncle Rico is probably the other thing I think really holds up, especially towards the the later parts of the film where he starts to be a little bit more untoward in <laughs> the products mm. he's pushing. What about for you? What do you think holds up the best?
0: Yeah, I had the visual comedy. So I mentioned earlier that the times that I laughed out loud, I think, were at these stupid little moments that just made me laugh. Like the bike jump? Like the bike jump is the first one. There's like throwing the stake. There's the thing that I think is my favorite thing in the whole movie, and it's when Kip runs over the Tupperware in the truck and it just shatters. he just it just shatters and he drives off and it's like what did you think was gonna happen um, so there's those things and obviously like the the dance scene and the time travel <laughs> um, the time travel machine where essentially he electrocutes or electric shocks his his genitals and there's nothing. i don't know what he's expecting to happen like do you think that he was going to go through time um i don't know that's that's just those gags that are just very silly and over the top but they're they're visual slapstick comedy and i I think they just work for whatever reason still
1: yeah there's there's just so many like weird little beats like that that so they get you know there's sort of a bit of foreshadowing about them like the idea that you know, all of these characters wish that they could go back in time for whatever reason, like Uncle Rico and Kip and Napoleon. And I think Uncle Rico is the only one that it really gets elaborated upon as to why he wants to go back in time to save his football career. But outside of that, yeah. it, it, you know, and then it just sort of ends after that, like he gets electrocuted and it's then very clear that Uncle Rico has already electrocuted himself trying to use the machine. <laughs> and that's it. Then it's just dropped from the film completely
0: yeah (laughs) it's just a little vignette yeah there's a there's kind of like a unknown factor here which is like what happened to napoleon's parents i mentioned before and i wonder if if like their absence is a part of the reason that napoleon is the way he is you'd have to think that's got to be a factor and that they deliberately didn't go down that path, but it's, um, it's interesting to speculate.
1: Well, and it's also things like, you know, which side of the family does uncle Rico come from and stuff like that. Like it's just, Mm -hmm. and I guess maybe for some of those communities, that's
0: kind of what it's like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, so whilst we're talking about electrocuting, genitals. I thought this might be a good time to talk about our friends over at Manscaped, the very best in men's self-care and self-grooming. I think you should know that uh, making a purchase from Manscaped is nothing like ordering a time machine off the internet. This stuff really works. Definitely will not send electric shocks to your body uh, and you'll, you'll only be coming out of it looking clean and feeling good. Pedro might be the only kid in school who can grow a moustache. But sooner or later, everybody needs to think about looking after their body hair because if you want to feel your best, you just have to look your best. Grooming gurus over at Manscaped have something for any area of need that you might have. So for body odor, there's the crop cleanser moisturizer that will reinvigorate your entire body. They've even got a refined cologne for that finishing touch. How about smelly feet? Maybe give the foot duster a shot for a 24 hour deodorant spray. You got a problem with nose hair or ear hair even? Not anymore, thanks to Manscaped's Weed Whacker with a 360 degree rotary dual blade system. Maybe LaFonda doesn't care for your body hair. The Lawn Mower 3.0 has you covered with a cutting edge ceramic blade and more features than you realized you ever needed in an electric trimmer for the very best in the business head to manscaped.com. you'll grab 20% off and free shipping if you use the offer code 8bit that's a t e b i t was definitely channeling some uncle rico sales energy right there (laughs) thank you yeah uh, i don't know if i'm quite as slippery as uncle rico but i don't know was he a good salesman i guess he kind of was he was
1: and but i think i think it was his product pivot that was his downfall
0: yes he should have stuck with tupperware um that's one of the things that i wanted to talk about in what holds up the worst and it's not like a poor choice or anything it's just something that i realized as i'm older is that how sad his character really (laughs) is like he's just it's he's just got this like unfulfilled life he just won't shut up about his football could have been career like it's like ah if only you know the coach put me in i would have played in the NFL and made millions of dollars. And he's obsessed with like filming himself, throwing the ball and making people watch it who really couldn't care less. So I, I found that interesting as, you know, a bit of perspective as an adult to kind of think like, you know, like, to, to spend that much of your life thinking about high school is, is really just sad.
1: Well, because, yeah, like, given given when the film is set, we know that Uncle Rico has spent 22 years obsessing about the fact that he didn't get put in for the, you know, the big game. <laughs> and that has dictated mm-hmm. much of his life for the following two decades. But it really does seem like he missed his calling in sales. So, I feel like that sort of gives his character a little bit of a redemption. But it is very sad and... Mm you know, with the whole time travel aspect and everything. and But I think that's a trope you see in a lot of, you know, films, uh, especially anything to do with sports, like the character who, you know, the could have been. Yeah. Not even the has been, the
0: never was. Yeah. <laughs> but the fact that he even mentions his girlfriend left him because he wouldn't stop talking yeah. about it or something, <laughs> it's just like, oh, man what are you doing with your life like what has he been doing all this time like has he been working in sales the whole time or has he been i don't know i think he's a
1: drifter like i get, I get strong drifter yeah. vibes from uncle rico because <laughs> I, yeah. I think
0: the sales is his latest scheme True. like he's jumping around from like farm to different jobs here and there i mean i guess that's the thing like in the
1: mid-2000s, you're just getting into door-to-door sales, that's probably not a good sign. <laughs> yeah.
0: Uh, and he knows about the internet. It's where he got his uh, his time machine. <laughs> <laughs> Outside of that, like in terms of what else holds up the worst,
1: the, the cassettes and VHS tapes, even in the mid-2000s, that feels so dated.
0: Mm. Yeah, you're right. Like, that really... I, I did know someone in high school, so like 2000 and probably like 2003 They were really holding on to the VHS Like they had They had a collection And they were just like Nah, I'm going to keep collecting them And maybe they actually are worth something now. I don't know But um, They were, you know Adamant about VHS over DVD <laughs> <laughs> What a purist <laughs> Yeah So I don't know <laughs> Maybe um, Maybe these people in this town are Along that line But no, you're right It, it certainly <sighs> there's an element where it it feels like this is a a town that's just a little bit behind, but then they just take it one step further into the surreal with with some of the stuff. Could be a socioeconomic thing as well, though.
1: Yeah, and that's sort of the vibe I got. Like, it's it's not that they want to be stuck with this stuff, it's that they don't really have any alternatives.
0: Yeah. There is a, a, a retard you know, reference. I was going to... Yeah, too. I did have that down in my notes
1: as well and, and Summer's casual racism in her speech against Pedro saying that if you just... Right, I don't want to yeah. be eating chimichangas all next year and her glitter... Yeah, that, that Her glitter Bonnie Bell reference. I'm like, ooh, that's... That's pretty old. Yeah, it's a bit off.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but it's also like... Like almost every time we've brought this up on this podcast, very true to just what the time was like. Like people use that term all the time talking about, you know, even that, like their friends when they wanted to insult them. And it, it's only, I guess, really been probably like 10, starting 10 years ago through to now that people have realized that it's really just a terrible thing to, to call someone and so offensive to, you know, people in the disability community that, that work in that community and, and um, are just part of that community.
1: And it's, it's, isn't it? I think it's somewhat interesting in comparison to other contemporary, what we consider teen comedies, that that's the, potentially the most offensive thing in this film.
0: Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. If you went back to um, like Can't Hardly Wait or something, there probably would be, you know, many other slurs. I, or there were other, we've, we've watched that movie and there were other slurs that um, that you just wouldn't even think about, even 10 years later all right so the next question was who would be the most offended and i guess you know we've, we've just mentioned one thing that doesn't hold up is there anyone else like any other groups of people that might not like watching this these days Oh, uh,
1: i can the only thing i think is and it's just with the character of pedro being a little bit i feel stereotypical in some ways and
0: he seems a little simple just because he's completely monotone, I guess. Yeah,
1: and I, I don't know if that was a, a choice um, that was put onto the actor by the director or whether it was a choice he made in terms of his delivery. But I also don't think when you, in retrospect, you watch the when Pedro doesn't really get a lot of development compared to some of the other mm. characters. Like, we really get to know very little about his home life and, you know other things aside from he wants to be the class president and he wanted to take the popular yeah. girl to the prom like a little bit underdeveloped yeah
0: yeah no you're not wrong there he has got some scene like the scene where he's talking about how he shaved his yeah. head <laughs> is uh is great and there's a deleted scene where he's talking about it's the same it's a it's like a alternate version of that where he's talking about how he felt sick and then he ate some chips that made him feel better and they must have been holy chips or something. So he has some moments to himself, but as far as character development, yeah, there's not really anything there. And I, I want, I would almost say like Kip's almost the only one that does have character development. Yeah. Like, and and maybe Deb. Like everyone else, like Napoleon just kind of goes through his life, and I guess the dance scene is kind of like his moment to shine in front of his. Peers, so I guess you could view that as as a development. But it's like he expresses a desire to, to perform and he finally achieves his goal or anything. It's just kind no, of... No, I, th- I think what you're getting at
1: there is that that's not a change in his character. That's a change in the perspective of how the other characters see him. Mm, yeah. So I think you're right in that even Napoleon doesn't necessarily develop much. He remains pretty static throughout the film. Whereas, yeah, like Deb and kip definitely and and uncle rico to a degree sure yeah but i mean there's not that many characters to begin with yeah true
0: does this movie pass the internet relevancy test are we seeing it pop up these days still and i'm gonna say yeah uh you see that bowl like that 10 pin bowling fist pump that kip does that pops up in gifs and and whatnot quite often if you if you type in like certain words i'm sure it would come up I
1: think it's there, but I don't... In my work, I obviously work with a lot of teenagers and have done for quite a while now, and this is not a film that's uh-huh. on their radar. Like, if I say Mean Girls, they're onto it. If I say Napoleon okay. Dynamite, they're like, what? It's. I just don't think it's carried over with some of the younger generations as much as some of the bigger films from that era, which mm. is interesting. So I think that, like, for our age group it's probably quite a good cultural cut- touchstone that you could reference mm-hmm. readily but i wouldn't necessarily say that younger generations would really even understand the context of
0: you know using some of that imagery yeah sure do you think if they watched it they would like it that's that's a
1: tough one it's so slow paced like it's it's so dry as yeah. well and i i would like to think that they would cuz i like General, I think people don't give teenagers enough credit and they tend to think they're pretty shallow and simple. But I find that what they really like is authenticity. They don't want to feel like things are fake. And I think Napoleon Dynamite, to them, would feel pretty real. And they might say that it's boring, but I don't think they'd say that it's bad. Or they might really dig it because it's not really like anything else they're watching. Or maybe it is because a lot of them consume stuff on YouTube and things that I would never see in a million years. And maybe there's stuff out there that does the same thing for Mm -hmm. them as napoleon dynamite did for people of our age group
0: yeah i could definitely see young people describing this movie as random oh yeah (laughs) because of the kind of humor that's in there like that's so random um and it is kind of like i mean not in the literal sense of what random means but the way that we use that term like that is kind of a way that even i would describe this movie like as you said before the typical joke setup is not present in this movie like he, he goes to the to the school nurse or whoever to call home because he's got chapped lips and he wants his brother to bring him chapstick at school like that is pretty random really and that's
1: like so much of it just feels like the delivery like you know you, can you imagine like the the script where it says they hurt real bad and, <laughs> and yeah like that could be done in so <laughs> many ways that would not be funny or even like I said before like your mom goes to college like so much of it I think is dependent upon the delivery like I think I I want to mm. give credit to those actors or at least the direction of um Jared Hess on set as to how he wanted those things to play out is what makes a lot of it so I guess humorous because I could yeah. see this film falling so flat and none of it
0: being funny in the wrong hands yeah that's a really good point yeah I think because they'd done like a short film before this that a lot of it was you know a lot of the scenes in this movie started in that short film so it feels like they had a long time to kind of stew on it and figure out what made it work and even though it was filmed in 22 days and they didn't have a lot of takes they were able to 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 go into it knowing exactly how they wanted it to be that I might jump forward to, to my useless trivia section <laughs> here because one of, one of my favorite things about researching this was that the dance scene was one of the last things they filmed. Well, I think it was the last thing they filmed, and they were literally running out of money and film, and they had like 10 and a half minutes of footage left. So, this was obviously before digital, and they just couldn't afford to, to do more than what they had left, so he had to go out there and do his dance scene with ten minutes of of recording time. And I, I'm guessing usually for that kind of scene they would do way more than that. Oh, it, but, on a bigger budget, that were like days, like probably days of film. Yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly. And it was semi improvised. They just knew that he, as an actor, <clears throat> as an actor, enjoyed dancing. So he had a few different, you know, things up his sleeve and combined them and, you know, took different moves, some different like music videos. And I think they said he danced to three different songs because they weren't sure which one they would get the rights for. And it ended up being obviously Jamiroquai, which costed quite a lot of the budget for the film. (laughs) It's probably like a quarter of the Um, budget right there. Yeah, I I think I read half, but I don't know. Like that seems like a lot. No, that's but...
1: that's that's in the ballpark. Like as ridiculous as that sounds, like fifty to two hundred k easily for a song license.
0: You say, yeah, I I I understand that, but then there's also other big songs in the movie, like Time After Time and and you know Forever Young. But maybe they have become big because of nostalgia and movies like this. It would
1: depend on whether Fox itself had any of those in, you know, any back catalogs that they would purchased as well. Sure. So, sometimes, you know, okay. you have to fight for that one song and, you know, they're saying, but it's going to cost you a quarter of the budget. And yeah. I guess if it's really that important, then you'll go for it. Um. I mean, I, I guess they probably maybe just didn't have to pay as much for some of those other songs
0: mm. yeah interesting anyway uh, i just love that little tidbit they they took the three dances over the 10 minutes and just cut them together into this one yeah, sequence. mega and cut and <laughs> it, it it worked like i guess the songs maybe they had like a, a similar beats per minute for it to just kind of work but um definitely one of the one of the probably most iconic dance scenes in certainly in the last 20 yeah, years well, would you say in modern cinema definitely mm. like wh- it just it's just so unexpected like it just comes out of nowhere for a character like this yeah, and it's well and it it's sort of like it's a payoff
1: of you know him buying the dance video and We Mm -hmm. see him practicing in his room in those sort of like awkwardly kind of voyeuristic scenes where it's just the crack through the door that you're watching him and LaFond asking why he's so sweaty and giving him the tape. Like it all kind of ties (laughs) together in this weird way to provide some kind of satisfying
0: payoff. Yeah, for sure. If If you take that out of the movie, it's a very different film. Like there's almost no climax at all. Um. I know that there's a version of this film where Kip and LaFonda get married at the Uh, end. Oh, that's post-credits scene. Yeah. It's a post-credits scene. Maybe I had turned off before that, but I did read that they came back and filmed it months later. Yeah, that would have been probably after
1: Fox had picked it up and were like, oh, do you want to add something onto it? Because I know and I watched it. I was like, it finished. I was like, I thought Kip and LaFonda got married. So, I sped through the credits and there it is it's
0: like a post-credits scene right okay weird weird scene to throw there at the end but it's it's got some some laughs in it and uh, apparently i don't know why because it's not that elaborate but that post-credits scene cost like almost as much as you know half the rest of the movie cost Uh,
1: once once a big studio is involved i'm sure there's a lot of other things that you maybe could get away with on a non studio picture that they couldn't do any more mm-hmm. in terms of union stuff and things like that, maybe, and also yep. Napoleon riding up on a horse and insurance and all of those <laughs> other things that the studio would be like, No, this is how it's done when you make a real motion picture with your four hundred thousand dollar <laughs> budget. So I think that's yeah. one of those things as well. Like once the studio's involved the cost is a lot higher than what it is when it's just you and your friends
0: putting it together yeah that's a good point they would have had like an animal supervisor and they would have had like a horse trainer and they would have had catering and all this stuff that the shoestring budget just would have you know kind of ignored as much as possible yeah how would modern smartphones and social media change this movie this is an interesting one because there's like no modern technology already (laughs) in this movie so i think for this question like it would just be way more jarring that like i guess if they were making this now for them to avoid things like smartphones and social media because in the in 2004 like we said before you can kind of get away with this is just a town where they're a bit behind and maybe it's a bit more expensive to 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 get this stuff imported or to to drive to the closest capital city to buy the cool shoes or the the new car or the new tv uh and get the latest phone and maybe even like having the internet in this town like i know towns that didn't have like gas like gas yeah for until like the 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 late 2000s because for whatever infrastructural reasons they just weren't set up to have gas so they just didn't have it um and I, (laughs) i guess what i'm trying to say is that if there were modern smartphones in this movie, it would just be like completely different.
1: <laughs> I think if it was getting done, they would have very old phones. I think they'd be rocking like Motorola Razors and things like that. Like, I think that's how they'd get around it. Like, and very spotty yeah. cell reception, as you know, lots of horror films I want <laughs> yeah. to do to get away with having that technology mm-hmm. existing in that world. Again, like I said before, it's such a weirdly anachronistic film in so many ways. Like, it's the Midwestern setting. It's the socioeconomics of the area. Like, Napoleon has to use the front office's phone as opposed to, you know, texting, Kip, can you bring my chapstick to school? That sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But who's to say he'd have a phone? Like, maybe they'd be like, no, Napoleon's family's broke. He doesn't have a phone. He has to, you know, borrow a phone off the popular kid or something. And... As you mentioned before, Kip and LaFonda might have a different dynamic given the shifts in online dating and tech. Like, it could be the thing, Mm -hmm. like, rather than... She hasn't sent a full body, like, she won't turn her webcam
0: on or something like that. (laughs) I did think that Napoleon would definitely be one of the people, like, getting into fights on social media, like, Twitter especially. Oh, yeah, beef. I feel like... Yeah, I feel like he would have, like... Probably, like, an anime avatar or something... Uh, and he would be like making up lies, like starting rumors and like fake news links <laughs> and that kind of thing. Like we in the we're in the video game community, you and I. and to think of like someone like him with with Twitter would just be like, yeah like my, he's the typical like my uncle works at Nintendo kind of guy. I think
1: you'd have a lot of followers just because people would be entertained. I, I was wondering, would Uncle Rico have his own YouTube channel or podcast?
0: <laughs> yes, 100%. It would, yeah, he definitely would. I don't know if anyone would watch, would watch it, but yeah, he's almost like Tiger King kind of vibes, Uncle Rico. I could see him going down some crazy path like that eventually.
1: Yeah, like just his homemade football movies that putting up on, <laughs> like, you know, emailing links to scouts. Like, you know, I've still got it.
0: Mm, I could see Deb being a youtuber like with her handy oh she would be on etsy for sure yeah that too yeah for sure she'd be like this is a tutorial on how to make like you know a a bracelet out of macaroni doing profile pictures for everyone's (laughs) instagram account yeah that too so kind of touched on this could you make this movie today what would the the modern version be and i I think you pretty much said before like it It would kind of get lost today, wouldn't it? I
1: think you would have to use some of those tricks, as I said, that horror films are so fond of these days to get around modern technology and that connectivity. I think you'd have to really play up the rural setting that maybe there's no cell towers and the only people that have phones have, you know, the ones that are quite well off and all the characters we tend to focus on maybe aren't doing so well, so they don't have mobile phones and things Mm -hmm. like that. And like the whole social media thing would probably tie in really well to the vote for Pedro maybe Napoleon's dance video would go viral and then everyone would vote for yeah. Pedro there somehow so i think there would be ways to do it but i
0: don't i don't necessarily think it would work as well yeah thinking about just that in itself like i, f- I feel like the the temptation would be to make the dance scene like the midpoint of the movie and then You'd have to have Napoleon that. becomes like that reaction. Yeah, he becomes like a, a yeah, he he turns into like a celebrity and he's not sure how to deal with it or maybe he starts believing his own hype or something or, or or like believing that people think that he's cool but they're actually just laughing at him and he has to like come to terms with with that. So I think there are still cool things you could do but like that's 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 in an imaginary world where this movie doesn't exist and it's coming out for the first time. I don't really think that we anyone really wants to see like a new version of this film made now or a sequel or anything
1: no like it did just feel weirdly shoehorned in i think it it nee it is what it is for a reason because obviously like by 2004 they they've already ignored some technologies and other things like myspace was a thing uh, and i'm sure facebook wasn't far behind it at, at that point at least maybe not outside of university campuses but if they were university students they probably were aware of those sorts of things at that point. So I guess they even saw issues with the inclusion then, let alone now, like 15, 16 years later, where it would just feel off. Yeah.
0: All right. It's time for the Steve Buscemi Spark Plug Award. Steve Buscemi. A real spark plug. So if you didn't know, Stephen, this is where we honor a performer who just kind of shows up, does their thing, lights up the screen... And then disappears again. And I think the only real contender has to be Diedrich Bader for this one. He does have two scenes, but they're both pretty brief. And he's absolutely lights it up when he's there. Oh,
1: for sure. Like, Rex is amazing. <laughs> Absolute highlight of the film is Diedrich Bader. <laughs> so, I, I, I think
0: you've got my vote for that, definitely. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to give a shout-out to the guy... Who Uncle Rico tells him to try and break the Tupperware, <laughs> and he and and he's like so disappointed in himself. He's like, I, I can't I can't. Oh, do and it. his wife desperately wanting the model boat. I want that. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Very good. I think so though, good. that duo definitely. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that those performances very subtle, like like a lot of the performers in this movie, but they're the ones that uh, that I thought stood out but we'll give it to Diedrich congratulations to you and that brings us to our very last question is Napoleon Dynamite still a good movie
1: what do you think it really depends who you ask like according to my wife it was never a good movie um I definitely have a soft spot for its awkward brand of goofiness and I I think there's a certain subset of teens who it really captured and in turn spoke to like I enjoyed rewatching it and I would still say it's a good film but very Mm -hmm. divisive um I think... I don't know if there's much of an in-between. I don't think you kind of like Napoleon Dynamite. I think you either really enjoy it or you can't stand it.
0: Yeah, and that's something we somehow haven't touched on up until now is how polarizing this movie was and still is. Like, uh, Brendan White, who's obviously been on this podcast a lot, this was one where he was like, I I can't do that movie. Like, he... It's just not something that... Like, for all the diverse, you know, tastes that a man can have for comedy, like, there's a lot of people that just... They either don't get it or they just don't find it funny. And it's interesting that it's such a, you know, polarizing part of, of what makes this film funny. And I think,
1: as you said, that was sort of reflected in some of those review scores as well. Like, 72% seems to me to be something that's fairly polarizing. Obviously, there's a, a percentage of people who are saying it's quite good and another mm-hmm. percentage of people saying that it's actually a waste of your time and not very worth it. Like, that very weird, like, middle, like, mid to high-tier ground, you know, the, the classic 7 out of 10 video game score. Mm-hmm. Like,
0: you'll either like yeah. it or you won't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think... Uh, yeah, that kind of response is almost like a. I liked it, but it's not for everyone. Is, is basically how how it comes across to me. And I would say that still now, like I enjoyed watching it again. It's not a movie that I would probably watch like even every five years, but to go back and watch it now after ten years or, or oh, so, yeah. it was it was it was fun. Like it was it was a nostalgic thing because I was, um, you know, eighteen or seventeen when I first saw this movie and. It took me back it took me back to not only the time that i saw it but seeing like the technology and the old outfits in this took me back to the 90s and it took me back to you know the the things that i watched in the 90s that were set in the 80s that where people wore the same outfits and used the same technology so there's definitely a, a part of this movie that gets better as we get further away from that time point where it, it does kind of Have that periodness to it. (laughs) I think that's true of a lot of stuff as well.
1: Like, even something like Clerks. I think when you glob onto these sorts of formative films, what you're inevitably watching is the past experiences of someone who's older than you, at least by, you know, half a decade, if not more. And then somehow that weirdly transforms into indicative of your experiences. Like, you have that sort of connection to the film, even though. I didn't grow up in the Midwest. I didn't grow up in this weirdly anachronistic, you know, nowhere rural town where everyone still got tech from the late 80s and early 90s and things like that. But to me, like, I'm like, oh, yes, Napoleon Dynamite is one of my high school films. I I resonate with it in the same way that, you know, I say, oh, yeah, Clerks, it resonates with me. I never worked in a convenience store. Like, none of that stuff is true (laughs) to my experience, but there's just something about it that's there and... I guess that's the thing where I wonder if newer generations would find it to be a good movie.
0: Yeah, so I guess I mean, if you're a young person listening to this that likes this movie, let us know. Tell us why. Um, or if, or or if you've got kids who hate it, tell us that too because I yeah, I'm curious on on how it hits for, for people that maybe didn't see it when it was you know, a part of the Zeitgeist as it, as it was. Uh, Stephen, where can people find you on socials if they want to catch up with you and see what you're doing over at Player Two? Um,
1: I am at Gorath forty four thousand on Twitter, G O R A T H four four zero zero zero, and um, I pop up on Player Two occasionally with the odd review of usually weird stuff no one else wants to review.
0: <laughs> Have you got anything coming up soon that people should check out
1: or recently? Um, I'm hopefully putting the finishing touches on a review of clear two which is a little switch kind of binaural horror game and then the big one i've got to tackle is trails of cold steel four, which i think is probably a good 80 to 100 hours in length so
0: yeah good luck with that Good luck finding the time. I guess you're, you've got some school holidays now, so maybe you'll be able to smash through a little uh, bit.
1: Fortunately, the game has a high-speed mode that they've ported in from the PC, so you can play it at like quadruple speed. Brilliant. So maybe I can get that
0: down nice. to 50 or 60 hours. <laughs> <laughs> All right. If you want to catch me on the socials, you can hit me up at Jono himself. People listening now can subscribe if you haven't already. Please share the podcast with your friends. You can grab your 8-Bit merch over at shop 8 Bit. Net. We've got a Comedy Rewind inspired t-shirt with a nice Sony VHS throwback design, so check that one out too. We've got some Kofi supporters who we really want to thank for for getting behind what we do here. If you want to chip in a few dollars a month, you can head over to ko-fi.com slash weare8bit. And right now we've got the 8-bit founders coins up for grabs for just 20 bucks. You can grab one of these collectibles and for that price, you'll get it shipped to you anywhere in the world. So it's a pretty sweet deal. Uh, We want to encourage you again to get on the Apple podcast, get on the Podchaser, whatever your podcast service of choice might be and leave a nice little five-star rating and review to help out the show. And dear listeners, we just want to thank you again for joining us on Comedy Rewind. Until next episode, be kind.